Take your copy of God's Word and open them once again to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, I want to continue with the same passage that I was in this morning. I want to look at verses 6 through 9 tonight. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. Um, this morning, and, and as I was studying this this week, John MacArthur pointed out that, um, that we have been born again. God has caused us to be born again to um, this living hope and to this inheritance that will come. And those are things that will sustain us and protect us. He uses the words, or the, the way he says it is that those are two things that protect us throughout this life and, and uh, cause us to persevere, this living hope and this inheritance that is to come. Then he goes on and he uses the language, looking at verses 6 through 9, and talking about that trials are another thing that, um, that sustains us. Now, when I read that, I thought, he, he must have misspoke. That doesn't make sense. Trials sustain us. If anything, trials um, don't sustain us. They tear us down. They, uh, they cause us to lose hope. But uh, the more I thought about it and the more I looked at Scripture that speaks to it, that's exactly what trials do. Trials are very, very helpful in our perseverance as we live this Christian life. So I want us to look at that tonight. Um, Let's just read verses 6 through 9, and then we'll pick it apart. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and to honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I want to just walk through this text together and, uh, and look at it word by word, phrase by phrase. The, the very first three words there, or four words there, he says, in this you rejoice. Well, it's sort of like coming across therefore in Scripture. Um, anytime you come across therefore, you need to look back and look at what it's referring to. Well, in the same way, when you hear Peter here write, in this you rejoice, you need to look back and ask yourself, what is he referring to? What is this? What is this that causes us to rejoice? Well, we go immediately back to the previous verse, verse 5. This is what causes us to rejoice. This was a people that were, they were living in a foreign land, persecuted, hated, worrying that their faith would be destroyed, that their faith would fail, it would fade away, and that they would fall away from grace. And in verse 5, he tells them, great news, you're guarded by the power of God through faith. That's good news. And that's what he's referring to here. He says, you rejoice in the fact that God's guarding you. God's keeping you from escaping. God is keeping you from being attacked through your faith. And that's cause to rejoice. In this, you rejoice. They were worried. And what better news could he give them than your faith will not fail. Your faith will not fade away. For those of you who are truly saved, you will endure. 
you will persevere. Your faith will not fade away because your faith is not grounded in your own ability. And that's what he's referring to in verse 4 when he says, when he describes this inheritance, when he says that it is, um, what are the words he uses? It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and then this little phrase, kept in heaven for you. Let me just spend some time there. word kept means to be reserved. It was reserved for them, for you. Imagine the father who is trying to lead his family. He's wanting to serve the Lord, wanting to value Christ more than anything. He's heard the gospel, embraced the gospel, and he's trying to lead his family in the gospel. But everywhere he turns, everything's against him. The whole world that he knows is against him, and they hate him, they mistreat him, they intimidate him, and for him, it would be a whole lot easier just to turn his back on this faith and walk away. It would be a whole lot more profitable for his family. His family would be a whole lot more comfortable in the world that he's in. If he could just turn and walk away, and he's worried, will I be strong enough to stay in this faith? Will I let my wife down? Will I let my children down? And he gets this from Peter, and Peter says, It is kept in heaven for you. It is reserved in heaven for you. And it pierces him like a knife, like an arrow through his heart. It's for him. It's for him. I had that experience this morning when we were singing it was for me. It, it, was, it was my sins that held him there. So we sang that song this morning. I, I just thought through that and I was watching the screen and I was, I was looking at the, at the video or the depiction of Jesus on the cross and those words came across. It was my sin that held him there. If you've not really contemplated that, contemplate that. It was your sin that held him there. And so I think it pierces this father or a mother or a child who's trying to live this faith there. And he says, it's reserved, it's kept in heaven for you. Pay attention to those two little words in the middle. In heaven. If you have something today that is valuable... Where are you going to put it? Well, we used to put it in the stock market. I used to have it in, you know, in the equity in my home. And I used to put it in the banks. Now I think I may just take it home and put it under my mattress. What better place could there be for this thing that they need more than anything to make it than for it to be put in heaven? Nothing can enter heaven and take it. It's kept in heaven for you. It's not going to crash. The percentage is not going to drop. It's not going to be burned down. It's kept in heaven where nothing can enter and steal. Kept in heaven for you. Oh, that is good news. In this you rejoice, he says. Isn't that good? Woo, that's good. All right. Let's go on. 
It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. Though now for a little while, no matter how long it may feel that you're going through trials, no matter how long it may feel that you've not heard from the doctor, you've not gotten a good report, you've not heard from that wayward child who's off doing all those things that he or she should not be doing and you didn't raise them that way and your heart breaks for them, no matter how long that is compared to heaven, it's only a little while. Though now for a little while, little, it's only a little while compared to eternity. That word eternity is what caused me to burst into my Randy Travis impersonation this morning and sing always and forever because that's what it means. Always and forever. And by the way, I had a request for digging up bones. I'm not going to do that here. <laughs> That'll be at the last, you know, at glorification on the two weeks from today. And then he, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. If necessary. Those two words are a reference to the sovereignty of God. How could something be necessary unless there's someone who is deciding what is and is not necessary? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. God is sovereign and God knows what's best for you and I. And it's in this verse, along with a lot of others, that I see this teaching that whatever comes your way is right and necessary. I, I, would, I would never dream to call the pastor up in Gaffney tonight and explain to him how the death of his six-year-old son is necessary. I would... Never dream to do that. It would be insensitive and cruel. The timing would be horrible. But in this room tonight, among family, for whatever reason, a reason beyond me, we can trust in a God who knows what is necessary. And even in that family tonight, they can rest assured that God has their best interest at heart. And he's not about giving them their best life now. He's about preparing them and getting them ready and taking them all the way to eternity. In this you rejoice, though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Trials, I want to show you tonight, trials do at least three things in our lives. Number one, Trials reveal our faith as genuine, or they reveal our faith as not genuine. But the purpose of trials when they come into the lives of believers is, number one, to reveal that faith as being genuine. That's what he means in verse 7 when he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. I talked this morning about doubting your salvation. And uh, many of you, as you left today or throughout the day, have, have communicated to me that just appreciation for preaching that sermon and with honesty about that because you said, well, you know, I, I too deal with doubt from time to time. Uh, you know, I thought about this. Do I deal with doubt of my salvation? Well, honestly, no. 
Not anymore. At least not like I used to. There may be seasons where a thought may race through my head, but it doesn't linger long. But I thought back to in the beginning. I thought back when I first came to know Christ and as I was growing through my teen years. I doubted my salvation probably a whole lot more then. Well, what's made the difference? The difference has been the trials that have come into my life. And as I have experienced trials through my life, the testing of my faith has proved that my faith is genuine. As you go through trials, trials force you to this issue of, do I trust God or not? And while I would not wish a trial on any of you, I also know that you won't be what God has for you to be without trials. There's only one way you get that, and you get it by practical experience. I used to, in college and then in seminary, it was very obvious that there were some professors that they had spent a lifetime in the classroom. And all they knew was theory. And they could postulate and teach all these grand-sounding schemes, and it was all wonderful. But those of us who had been out there doing real ministry in a real church somewhere knew that what he was talking about wouldn't work. Because all he had ever known was what he had read in books. The reality is, when you get out in life, you deal beyond books and you deal with lives. And you deal with people. And the only way you'll get what you need to get and be who God is ultimately going to make you to be is getting beyond just the head knowledge and getting to some real life experience. And that's not fun when we're talking about trials. But that's true. So, do I doubt my salvation? Not like I used to. I want to show you this scripture, and I think this is what Paul was talking about too. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. 2 Timothy 1, 12. Let me just back up and go to um, well, let me just start in, in verse 10. He says, in, "In which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to delight through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do." But I'm not ashamed, for I know who I have believed. How does he know who he has believed? How has he become convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me? How does he, has he come to that conclusion? Because of what he suffers. Because of the tribulation and the famine and the nakedness, and the sword. Paul knew those things firsthand. And that's how he come to know who he had believed. I don't know what you're going through at the moment. 
But if you are going through hard times, a trial of any sort, take heart because if your faith is genuine, the trial will show it like nothing else. Secondly, trials in our lives purify and strengthen our faith. You see, it's not enough just that we have faith. It is about the fact that God is building in us pure faith and strong faith. And trials exercise this like nobody like nothing else. In, uh, in the second part of verse 7, back in 1 Peter 1, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. There's, there's this issue of the fact that God is using trials to test our faith. Um, the image here is one that in the end, um, there's coming a day where in the end, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about this, that, that even for the believer, not just the pastor, but even every believer, even though they will not stand before the ultimate judgment seat where condemnation will be handed out. Because for the believer, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no more condemnation. But they will stand before a judgment seat where their works are judged. The Bible here gives us this picture of when we go through trials, it is this testing of and purifying of and strengthening of our faith. When I read that, and you look at the imagery of the, the fire and the gold that is that is tested by fire. There's another picture in Scripture that talks about, uh, that, that we see that um, deals with purifying, purifying silver. And what they would do when they purified silver, many of you know this, but they would take silver and uh, they, would, they would heat it and melt it. And as they melted and the fire rose hot under that silver, the dross or the impurities would come to the top and they would take it and they would scoop that off and they would heat it again, and more impurity, more dross would come to the top, and they would scoop that off and do away with that, do it again, and they would heat it multiple times over until they knew it was finished. The way, the way they knew it was finished by, was by looking over into it, and when they could see the reflection of their face in the silver, they knew that it was purified. And the reality is that testing, trials come into your life, and things get hot, and the impurities are boiled away and what God is doing is God is is producing in you the image of his son and there will come a day when God looking into your life will see a reflection that bears the image of his son and your faith will be pure and strengthened it's what James is talking about when James says consider it all joy my brothers when you encounter various trials for the testing of your faith produces endurance it goes on from there it strengthens and it purifies our faith third not only does it reveal our faith is genuine not only does it purify and strengthen our faith but third is this is it completes our faith in the last part of verse 7 there in first peter 1 he says so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our faith will not be complete 
if it comes crashing on ourselves. Our faith is complete then and only then when it is to the praise and the honor and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on from there and he he gives us a couple of, probably three, but I want to give you two, marks of persevering faith. Trials do those things in your life and they're producing this persevering faith. He gives at least two marks of persevering faith. Look at verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You think about that. How many of us have seen Jesus? There's not one of us that have seen the physical manifestation, the physical body of Jesus Christ. We saw what we believe is an artist's rendering of him this morning on the screen. But none of us have seen him. He's not walked into your house. He's not met you at the coffee shop. He doesn't get up and have a quiet time with you in the morning in person. Yet you love him. It's the mark of persevering faith that even though you have not seen him, you love him. My wife and I were watching a show the other night. I don't even remember the show. But um, there were these prisoners in a, in a prison. And um, I don't know why I'm talking about prison today. Shawshank Redemption this morning and whatever this is tonight. Um, but it, there was a men's prison and a women's prison. And there was a wall in between. And this man in this, in this bed, confined to this bed in his prison cell, discovered that there was, there was, a, um, there was a hole in his wall. And it was just enough that when he called through that wall one day, the person in the, in the cell on the other side answered back to him. And it was a woman in the woman's prison just over here. And they didn't know each other. They'd never seen each other. But they loved one another. This woman in this show was, she was an American citizen. And he was the one who had taught her Spanish and all this sort of thing. And they had talked every night through this, through this little bitty hole in the wall. And they had never seen one another. Yet they loved each other. And that's the picture here is that we've never seen, we've never seen Jesus face to face. But for the, a mark of the true believer, the one who is persevering in his faith is though he has never seen him, he loves him. And why do we love God? Why do we love Christ? First John tells us because he first loved us. Because he has reached out to us. He has removed the middle wall of separation. The second mark of the persevering faith is also in verse 8. He goes on and he says, Not only do you not see him, yet you love him. But though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Persevering faith, even though we don't yet see him, we don't now see him, we still believe in him. And this is what they needed to hear. In a world where they thought that they could lose their life at any moment, lose their faith, not know if they would really make it to heaven. They needed, they needed to hear Peter say this, that even though you still don't see him at this moment, you still believe. That's the mark of a per- persevering Christian. The longer we live in this world, the more we are to hope and look forward to seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be wonderful to be alive 
to be alive when the Lord Jesus comes back, wouldn't it? You know, I mean, it would just be an incredible thing. Um, there's a verse that I was in, I came across in my studies. I don't remember where it was, but uh, but it talked about that. Uh, the prophets of old had searched and longed for the days of the promised Messiah coming. You know, when they were writing about it and speaking those things and looking forward to it, they had no idea the generation that would be alive when Jesus came the first time. Do you know that Peter likewise has no idea the generation that would be alive when Jesus came back the second time? What if we were that generation? Boy, that would be good. Because Peter wrote it about somebody and God has preserved it in his book for somebody. Lord, let it be us. Lord, let it be my children. And then he goes on and he says, he just wants to remind them again of the results of persevering faith. He again is encouraging them, hold on, keep going. Your genuineness will be revealed through the trials. And the very last thing in verse 9, he says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It is a settled issue with Peter. Peter says, these things, don't get discouraged by these trials because these trials reveal your faith as genuine. They will strengthen and purify your faith. They will complete your faith so that in the end, you will obtain the salvation of your souls. It's done. It is settled. Your address is not there where you are. Your home is in heaven. You will be glorified. And that's, that's what I want to leave you with tonight. As you go into your life, your other life, if you will, which, by the way, I hate that, that thinking. You have no other life. You have one life, and it is the life of Christ living through you as a believer. But as you go into your job or you go into your normal weekly activities, I want you to go into it with this mindset that God's put you there for a reason. He's put you there to be his witness, his mouthpiece, his representative, right where you are. And there may be times when it is hard and it is not fun and you are way out of your comfort zone. And they don't like you because you're the Christian in the group. And the reality is, though, there's coming a day when you will obtain the salvation of your soul. You're not there yet. But for the believer, that day is coming. And I want, it to, I want you to think of that and let that encourage you and spur you on right where you are to live for that day. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you, God, for your word. God, thank you that our salvation is secure. God, I thank you that, that for those of us who are genuinely saved, there is not a thing in the world that we could do to fall out of grace. I can't, 
can't be bad enough to lose it. God, that is that is absolutely amazing. But God, I thank you that the reality is that you have not only guarded me in that way, but you have changed the very want of my life. That I would no longer even want to live in such a way that I would question that might cause me to lose my salvation. God, I thank you that as, as we were running our hellbound race, that you rescued us. That you called us back to yourself. That you made us alive. That you showed us our sin. You changed our nature. And we are no longer children of wrath. We are no longer sons of disobedience. But God, you are conforming us to the image of your character and uh, of your son. And you will stop at nothing, even if it means hurting us from time to time. In order to get us there. And God for that we say thank you. Lord I thank you for. Calling us together as a family here. God I pray that we would love one another. That you would teach us to love one another. That we would care. That we would get along. That we would, we would laugh together and have fun. But God that we would also serve your kingdom. Till that day that you come back. Or that you call us home. That we love you. In Jesus name. Amen.